I just had this vision on my trade show stand of opening this shop. I was here selling my work to loads of other galleries, thinking, oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a gallery that just specialised in artisan lighting, in craft lighting? Um, I would love to be What in do you that. mean? You were actually at a trade show, like in the midst trade. of all that chaos where everyone mm-hmm. is like running around and mm-hmm. you're like yeah. tired because you're standing on your feet and you're yeah. chatting people all day. Absolutely. And then you just... You had a revelation? You had like an, had, an epiphany? I had an epiphany. It was a really stop you in your tracks vision of what my future was going to be like. It was one of those quiet moments where um, I'd stopped talking and I was just having a, like a breath of air. And it just, it really did just hit me and it kind of floored me. Like, I'm going to open a shop. It's going to be me. I could do that. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Tune in and hear Hannah Noon's story. But first, who is Hannah? A crafts major who 17 years ago had an aha moment. In her words, enjoying silhouettes she made and saying to herself, hey, why don't I make lights? Sounds quite simple, right? Well, since that day, Hannah has managed to build a thriving business. She's well known in the Sapia community and well known outside of it. She has sold work of fellow artists, has 30 plus stockists, has reached 10k followers on Instagram, and thanks to her, many new brands were formed, including, for example, a brand called Esmo by Una, who's another member of our community. Hannah tells us about her journey, talks about how she's dealt with 2020, and gives us a rare and deep look into her creative process. Tune in. Welcome everyone and welcome Hannah. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure, absolute pleasure. I've been waiting for this call for a while and um, we got curious about you. And um, I think that the, the first thing that caught my attention is how connected you are to that creative process. And uh, when I, I wanted to prepare for this conversation just to learn more about you, and we've noticed you had a movie in the about a section on your website. And that yeah. movie is it's a short movie. Um, it's like a clip. It's beautiful. It's like a very vivid visual way to tell your story. It shows your passion for nature. It shows where you came from and sort of explains why you're doing or how you're doing what you're doing. It even shows you in the studio doing your creative work. What was the reason behind making this movie? I just had this vision on my trade show stand of opening this shop. I was here selling my work to loads of other galleries and thinking, oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a gallery that just specialized in artisan lighting, in craft lighting? Um, I would love to be What do you mean? You were actually at a trade show, like in the midst of all that chaos where everyone Mm -hmm. is like running around and Mm -hmm. you're like tired because you're standing on your feet and you're chatting people all day. Absolutely. And then you just, you had a revelation, you had like an, had, an epiphany? I had an epiphany. It was a really stop you in your tracks vision of what my future was going to be like. It was one of those quiet moments where um, I'd stopped talking and I was just having a, like a breath of air. And it just, it really did just hit me and it kind of floored me. Like, I'm going to open a shop. It's going to be me. I could do that. And then um, at the time, wow. I was. Our studio group was under threat from being turned into um, more luxury flats. All the mills around here have been turned into um, flats and our studio was under threat of that. And everybody was talking about where they might go and what they might do. And What do you and mean it was under threat? Talk to me a bit about that. What, what happened there? Because these old mills in this valley were pretty run down, um, some of them. The one that I used to have a studio in was quite run down, but you know quirky and lovely and we had a we had our studio right at the top of the mill with far-reaching views across the valley and it was beautiful but the windows weren't you know stable they would they looked like the glass was going to fall out and they were really run down and they needed care and um there were lots of property developers at the time looking to buy up these buildings and turn them into flats um and our building was one of those that was under threat. So we wow, were all It's decided. like, uh, I'm sorry to distract you from the story, but you kind of like uh, 
took me on a journey now and I'm like mm -hmm. picturing this like um the Shire from The Hobbit you know <laughs> Have you, you watched the movie like this yeah. old valley full of mills old mills and it needs to be restored <laughs> and uh you're there fighting against the contractors <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. it was like that really <laughs> in a way so, so the, which which year are we talking about? It was around 2004, because I opened mm. Radio in 2005. So we're going way back to then. And Got it. So, so that was the background. You're like yeah. in that setting where like you're, you live in that area, it's going to be teared down. You still yeah, have a exactly. studio and exactly. you're going to these trade shows. Yeah. And, and I, I and was something hits you. Lamps for maybe three years or something at that point and selling them to to shops and galleries via I used to do the British craft trade fair that was my main show where I kind of started so I knew that my lamps were working and that they were selling and that they were inspiring people to buy them shops and galleries and individuals so I kind of had this growing confidence in my product and so then when I was at the trade show seeing other people making lighting was like I want to bring all these together into this really amazing, glowing, beautiful space. And I was so floored by my idea that I went to, I think she was called Sarah Taylor. I don't think she makes anymore. Um, but I went over to her trade show stand and I said, um, I'm opening a gallery. I was wondering if you could um, give me your trade details <laughs> like really confidently. Like I really believed that this was going to happen. So, so that she was like... Soon after like, you made this decision in your mind, yeah, you're just like, hey, I made this decision. Why won't I go and test it? <laughs> it was about 10 minutes later, probably. I'm quite impulsive like that. Um, and the funny thing was, though, that just around the corner from my house was this beautiful shop run by a cabinet maker, Bernard McNally. And he was retiring from his work after a period of ill health and... Um, I'd spoken to his wife, Trish, in the street, my neighbour, saying that they were looking for someone to rent their shop because Bernard wasn't able to work in it anymore. And, you know, if we hear of anyone, then, you know, just let us know. So on some level, this seed had been planted, but I didn't think at the time in the street that this could be my shop. I could take on the shop mm -hmm. um, until I was at the show, inspired, excited, and I went, oh, my God. I could have the shop. I could have that shop. Really, <laughs> my house. <laughs> so it hit I gathered, you. I gathered some of the um, brochures and things, and suddenly felt like I had this this new pair of shoes on because I was usually on the other side of the trade show. I was the one who was trying to sell, and suddenly I was like, "Oh, I'm the one who could buy here." And I drew this little picture. I don't know if you've seen it. I sometimes share it on Instagram, but I. I when I got back from the trade show, I was buzzing with this idea. It's, it's this little um, line, black and white line drawing of the front of my imaginary shop. And it's got some of the lights, Amy Cooper's porcelain lights that I'd seen at British Craft Trade Fair. And it was this vision that I had. And I kept this sketchbook. And every day when I pick the kids up from school, we'd come back and I'd just be like writing in my little book thinking, oh, my God, I could have a shop. How do you do that? How do people have shops? What do I have to do in order to do it? And I went to Trish's. And that, that happened before that trade show, right? Or after? No, no, no. that was after the trade show. So, oh, so the trade show was like you, you conceived that idea in your mind. You also knew that you sort of have a place to, yeah. to rent if you'd like. And yeah, then you started. I didn't realize that at the time, to be honest. I think it was, or did I have the vision while I was at, on the trade show of like, Trish and the conversation yeah I did and I came back from the show got in contact with Trish and said do you think I could have the shop and she was like well it's got no toilet in it and no running water and I was like it doesn't matter because I only live two minutes away so I can oh. just nip home put the kettle on this is what I used to do I'd nip down to the shop with my cats behind me um <laughs> I'd come back make a cup of tea go to the loo and then walk back down to the shop with the cats following me. And, um, and it worked out really well. And also I had an amazing neighbor with a hat shop next door, hat therapy. And she used to let me um, 
go around there sometimes and she'd make me a cup of tea and she was a great neighbor so we wow, managed sounds, sounds like a lovely area yeah yeah it's great we managed for a while without um running water and um and yeah the shop was born i spent um so british craft trade fair was in april and that's when i had the idea mm-hmm. then i think i took it on around july in the shop because i spent the whole of the summer holidays doing up the shop um and we opened on the 5th of september so that those three months was the phase you just described where you just like had the sketchbook and you were like writing and thinking about it and imagining it after you pe- picked up the kids yeah yeah that's exactly it so uh, i want to ask you a bit about the dark side of that were there any moments of like doubt where you're like what <laughs> the hell am i doing here what the fuck am i doing i've never run, run a shop before what Absolutely. if i can't sell Absolutely. was it scary um right the night before i opened thinking i don't even know how to use a credit card machine i've never worked in a shop i don't know what i'm doing you know scared of when somebody passes me their card and i put it in the machine and it's a hard thing to practice before it happens in real life so yeah i was terrified of that I, was terrified how did you deal of, with that i just just read the instruction book and then just hoped for the best <laughs> which instruction book on how to own a shop No, <laughs> how, to use the, how to use the card machine. <laughs> no, I'm talking like, like at, a, at a deeper level. How did you reconcile your anxiety? Like it's a bold step to start a business like that. Yeah, it is. Were um, you guided by passion? Was it like, um, was definitely what helped guided, you there? Definitely guided by passion. And also um, one of the lovely galleries that I used to sell to was a gallery called Sanderson, George and Peach in Homeford. Um, and yeah. it had been there for many years. It was a beautiful, lovely place that I aspired to. And Debbie George, who um, was one of the owners, I got in contact with her and told her about my idea. And she said, right, come and we'll, we'll help you. And tell you how we run our sale or return model because they ran it completely as a gallery so everything that came through the gallery was on sale or return and it's like how do you um you know what's your system how do you do it so they kindly gave me about a day and and lovely katie who who worked for them um gave me a whole day of how they did it showed me all their systems which i took on and got it At the time, so, at the time uh, when they, yeah. I was opening, they were closing. They decided to close their doors and Debbie wanted to get on with her amazing painting, which she's just thriving at now, all these years later. Um, wow. So I, I, I bought their, all of their um, packaging, the lovely brown paper bags and their lovely till that went ding. a really old-fashioned till with a drawer in oh went. lovely <laughs> so i had a little bit of sanders and george and the spirit of the sanders and george and peach um within um radiance which was lovely so But, if i'm if i'm listening to you i hear you mention between the lines i read between the lines and i see two things one there was some element of education so you came to someone and they needed to give you information and that helped you sort of um this you weighed your your concerns um mm-hmm. help you feel more knowledgeable and you needed that knowledge and back then there was no internet that you could no uh, maybe there was it wasn't know, was that today, by any means it wasn't one of these today and then the, the second element apart from education is the network you knew who to talk to and you had those people within your um i don't want to say roller decks but you you know they were your friends or <laughs> your colleagues somehow and yeah. you contacted them And that these are two important elements that we certainly put a lot of emphasis on. It's education, network, sharing stories, right? Definitely helping each other out along the way. That's, um, it was definitely an important thing. And also, again, drawing on that network and that support, a lot of the artists who I contacted who I wanted to sell their things in my shop um, they kindly gave me their work to begin with on sale or return. So basically, if anybody's listening and they don't know what that means, it means that you 
initially get the work and you only pay for it once it has been bought <clears throat> by somebody. That's so, brilliant. So you don't take the risk personally. You, you just give up space. Um, the only risk is like the space because it's like it's taking Absolutely. someone else's space. But, yeah, uh, for, um, but it's a very non-risky way for you as a seller to do business. And at the beginning, that was really needed because I didn't have a budget for this at all. Mm. Um, I think my dad lent me a couple of thousand pounds to help me along the way. And, and so obviously that's not very much to fit out a shop and stock it full of products. Um, so, but because I was in that network of other artists, I was able to draw on, on that and people kindly gave me their work to start with. And in the end, uh, once, once things um, picked up, I preferred to buy things. I've always felt very nervous having things on sale or return because they didn't belong to me. You know, obviously I was going to take care of them, but it, was, it felt more risky to have something that didn't belong and I hadn't paid for it or... And the paperwork is phenomenal with sale or return as well. It's like, it's a lot of responsibility and, and percentages and doing maths. And, oh, I didn't like it all that much. Got I it. much preferred to just buy it from the beginning and then you knew where you were and you could sell it and know that that money was yours. <laughs> yeah, so, but it almost sounds like it acted as a, sort of an incentive or like a fire burning underneath you because you felt that responsibility. Maybe that pushed you um, yeah. to put more effort and like promote the business further and like sell other people's work. I guess I guess that did have an element of that. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And again, also I hear in your story the element of like being in a network and having relationships in place, which I think is also often overlooked, but that's you couldn't have done it without that, right? Absolutely not. And the other lovely thing, which I really always felt really sort of proud and, and happy about, was that all of these artists that I was selling were actually my competitors in the market, really, weren't they? They were all selling artisan handmade lighting and oh, yeah. like me. And they were all my competitors out there in the field. And But I was able to gather them all together and go, here we all are. We're in this together. Let's support each other and let's, you know, let's sell the work and let's show it to people. People used to love the shop. It was it was a glowing haven of loveliness. and Amazing. It, it's... Um... I love how you got into that mindset of like, instead of, uh, it's like co-opetition, instead of competing, you're like, let's collaborate. Uh, yeah. I heard Java say that as well, right? He started to sell other people's work. And yeah. I think I'm noticing it's starting to happen more and more because I think now with COVID, what people are understanding is that we're not competing as small artisans are not competing against each other. The real competition is Amazon and the likes or Etsy. That's yeah. what you're up against. That's so, a real thing. So it's right. like it's us and them. We're in this together. You're totally right. Yeah, it's not like they're the enemy or anything like that. It's just like there's such a wide selection there. But you're different. You're not offering something transactional. There's a story behind it. There's values. There's there's a lot of uh, substance and thought that came into your creation process. Mm -hmm. And the other, other artisans as well, when someone comes and buys from you, they end up buying an experience, not just a product, right? Absolutely, yeah. Really was it lovely. hard? Was it hard, like uh, grouping them together and explaining that to them, or did they feel sort of uh, the same uh, in the same way that you did? I don't really know how they felt about it at the time. It wasn't a conversation that we were having. It was just something that was happening, you know. And it's kind of looking back on it now, I now see that that was kind of. It was collaboration and, and supporting each other. At the time, it was just me having a gallery and, and being excited and wanted to make it as absolutely beautiful as possible. And um, yeah, and that's what happened. Got it. So uh, maybe that's a good conduit to talk about your creation process a bit. So you were not only selling other people's work, also selling your own work. You're, mm -hmm. um, let's say, um, I don't want to use the terms retailer and brand, but you were both at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And um, 
you're in your soul from what I've gathered so far, you're an artist, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. You're a creative person. What is your inspiration and how do you um, sort of uh, take us through that, that creative process? Like what goes through your mind when you create a product, for example? Well, I was writing about this in my mailing list yesterday, actually, because I swear I didn't know. So that was <laughs> well-timed, well well-timed. Just, just to, it basically, I think that it starts, how I put it yesterday was like a whisper. There's like a little whisper of something that's exciting. And it could be anything. Right back, like right back then, I, I didn't just do plants and flowers. I was in, I was excited about the buildings in the town where I lived and cutting out the windows and let light shine through. Um, uh, then it sort of started to become about um, about nature and about um, things around me. But basically, it didn't really matter what the subject was, but it was about that whisper deep inside that's going, look at this. What about this? How about this? Um, why don't you just try this? And and there's something that might happen in in response to that, like a little the critical voice inside you. Yeah, but why? Why that? That's not going to be anything. That's not going to go anywhere. Um, but then the other artist voice going, yeah, but you know, just try it because it's about playing and it's about experimenting yeah. and um, and you know, it's just about having fun. And you never know where that might go. And so I've learned to really over the years listen to that whisper you could say that having a shop was kind of a big vision but I always like to say that I do things in baby steps it's just one tiny step at a time and then listen for the next whisper what next what next that that image of whisper in my is is super powerful it's super profound um I've been reading a lot spiritual books mm -hmm. and lately Uh, there's a guy who's like a, a spiritual uh, guy, but he's also, he was uh, a tech CEO. And, uh, mm -hmm. and what he says, he studied Buddhism and yoga for many years. And he calls it the voice inside our head. So that critical voice that is like your, your psyche, your brain talking to you. No, mm -hmm. you're, it's like instilling doubt in you. Why do you yeah. do that? That doesn't make sense. You have no chance. You're going to fail. Uh, <laughs> but your friend did it better. And they're already more successful than you. And you're not that young anymore. Uh, that yeah. annoying voice, pestering voice, <clears throat> yeah. that's like our day-to-day, -day, our thoughts. We don't mm -hmm. control them. They just surface to our mind. And that's insane. And what you're describing, like behind it, it's almost like a faint whisper. And that's what he says too at the beginning. It's like, this is like your inspiration, your consciousness, mm -hmm. telling you what's the right path to open your heart and do something amazing in the world. Yeah. And um I see you describing the same thing, only with in different terminology. And sometimes know, that, that be a yeah. hard thing because though because of all those voices in your head trying to tell you otherwise, you have to really learn to get quiet and listen to that yeah. other voice, the one that wants you to just take those little steps. And um, I've got a little quote on my inspiration board um, by Rumi, the poet, which just says simply recall um respond to every oh, how does it go <laughs> respond to everything that excites your spirit in so many words like that wow um wait what's an inspiration board well it's just um a bit of my wall which has um things that i like to look at or things that are whispering to me like um Um, pictures and maybe seed pods or um, whatever things that I've made things that I want to make bits of quotes whatever so this uh, is like this is an audio um, uh, podcast obviously but if I walk into your studio and I look at that wall mm -hmm. so there's like so I guess you have like a lot of space to do your work your creative process and then suddenly there's a corner in there where it's like pictures quotes Yeah. On the wall of like things that inspire you? That's right. Yes. And what, what do you, do you go there and like update it on a daily basis? Do you stare uh, at it? Do you, what, what's yeah, your relationship I, with that? I, I should do it more. It'd be nice to do it more. But I've just been having a big studio reshuffle um, at the beginning of this year. 
and moved where my sort of desk used to be to another part of the studio. And so I took down my old pictures and things that have kind of gathered behind my desk and started afresh. And some of the old things that were there have gone back up on this new wall and some things are new. And, and it does sort of continue to grow and evolve, and evolve. but it's hard to um, wipe it fresh and clean just because it, it looks nice. <laughs> like no, I can... feel you. So oh. I'm, I'm trying to like, um, if someone is listening and they start hearing that whisper, maybe that is a good way to amplify that whisper, right? You put it on the wall and suddenly oh. you start thinking about it. You tie it up to other things that you're thinking about and it, yeah. gets, it gets like a real shape and form. Mm-hmm. Suddenly it's not that insane anymore. It's no. not only a whisper. <laughs> absolutely absolutely you're making those whispers real and you're you are acknowledging them you know if you ignore those whispers they get quieter they won't bother whispering to you anymore so that's that's incredible making the whispers real i think we're onto something there's like um, a very creative uh, spiritual framework here that other people could use yeah. i love that um, so that- i think that it, it's always been about drawing those things out. I mean, years ago, I um, do you know the book, The Artist's Way? I'm not, uh, I don't know it personally. Well, it's it's about the creative process and how to nurture that and how to listen to it. And um, the author, Julia Cameron, has a brilliant um, uh, exercise to do called Morning Pages, which is basically writing three pages of, a stream of consciousness writing. So it sometimes gets ugly because it can be about inner critics or, you know, what you're grumpy about or wish next door's dog would stop barking or blah, 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 blah. But then you keep writing and there may be these threads of insight and, oh, I loved how um, the light looked on the trees yesterday. I, I must go out with my camera. Oh, I really like, you know, and so it mm. just puts down everything that's sort of going on with you and that is a good place to catch those whispers so you sort of like you puke out everything that's on your mind all the the, those annoying thoughts and then slowly but surely the inspiration rears from behind and then it's like you start seeing it in action it doesn't always but yeah you're giving it the opportunity to you're giving it a place to have a voice and I think if you don't do that, then how are you going to learn to hear it? I mean, sometimes you do, don't you? You have insights in the shower, which could be a segue back into talking about the film, yeah. <laughs> which was the oh, initial the film. question that you the asked film. me. <laughs> and I went off really right back to the first ever seeds that were planted. Um, it's good because the in you know the real question about the film is not about the film it's about um you and like what made you do it so i guess you know we have a better understanding yeah um but but still actually you know back to the film uh, as long as we're on this subject Mm -hmm. why did you choose to make a film i didn't see many brands do it i know it's a lot of investment uh we've done some videos at sapia it's a lot of investment like the editing the script writing thinking about it uh, the audio, the imagery. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Well, because my friend Sarah had an epiphany while she was in the bath. <laughs> but, <laughs> Life will have epiphanies. Not a whisper, but a shout. <laughs> yeah. I need to make a film about my friend Hannah because we. So, this is why I started talking about the the shop a long time ago because she came to my shop to take a headshot for me um, for a book that I had written about contemporary craft lighting, which is a whole other story and tangent which we could go down. But staying on track and talking about the film, this is where a relationship was and friendship was formed with my dear friend Sarah. So she was in the shop, she took my photo and um, and we started to chat about what we like to do and both realised how much we love um, nature and walking in the woods and we were like, 
let's go for a walk together. <laughs> so shortly after that, we found ourselves on our first walk um, and taking pictures, talking about life, talking about creativity, talking about inspiration, dreams, etc. And, you know, basically we got on really well from the offset. And, um, and we used to do, for a long time, a weekly walk. And, I mean, it always happen weekly. Things get in the way, don't they? But we um, have a particular step that we go and sit on in the, in the beach woods. And we talk about stuff and dreams and ideas. And, and I think one time I've been talking to her about how... I'm telling her about a childhood memory about when I used to switch the lights on in my doll's house when I was little and how exciting that was to me to see all the tiny windows lit up golden glowing and, and peeping in the windows and and this went in and Sarah really liked this image of, of me doing that when I was little and it kind of gave her the idea so she had this idea of how to tell my story so mm. to begin with when I first met Sarah, we were, that, that's a long time ago. We met 10 years ago. And I think it's only in the last few years that she started making film rather than just still photography. And it's been amazing oh. to watch that grow. She's become really passionate and really brilliant at what she does. And it's interesting. It's like um, I'm thinking about the time that went through between the first time you met and that, that shower you mentioned the epiphany shower <laughs> and it took it took 10 years and a lot of um, getting to know you yeah and also probably a meeting of the minds like she wanted to do a movie she was looking yeah. probably for a subject or a topic to do a, a compelling movie about and there well, you were and, and she was also honing her craft because you know right mm. at the beginning she might not have been able to pull off with such grace what she did pull off in the film which, you know, the story of young me. And uh, when, she, she, when she suggested that we were going to have a young Hannah and, and you know, find a child to play me uh, looking in my doll's house, I was thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> really? Can you really make that work? <laughs> but I didn't tell her that. <laughs> oh, no, and... and there, there you go. That's a, one of the kind of um, reasons that you shouldn't doubt things because I mean, she she did it amazingly. She pulled it off so brilliantly, beautifully. She did. She and, did. It's uh, uh, it's it's on your about a section. Anyone who wants to watch it. And um, by the way, we can also add it to your Sapia profile. So we'll do it after the show. Don't worry about it. Uh, but I have a reflect reflection question for you. When you sort of. You know, you've done the movie, it's done, it's edited, it's live. Now you watch it. What does it make you feel like watching a movie about you? What do you learn from it? Oh, oh I love watching it. I've watched it probably too many times. It was a coming together of things that had, it's really hard to explain. But I think last year, the last couple of years, I've had um, a kind of environmental awakening I think um you could say and I you know started to become worried about being a maker of things in an already in a world that's already full of things and was I just con contributing to more things in the world and, and it just started to kind of eat away at me and I wasn't very happy about um making my lights my lights are are made of um, laminated plastic and there's you know plastic has been seriously demonized for good reason um in yeah. the world at the moment and um and i couldn't separate out my plastic that i was using and creating with and um single use nasty um throw away one-time use plastic and it sort of led me on a big soul searching um thing about what i was doing and all through lockdown last year i actually thought i was going to give up making my life and i remember actually even you and i exchanged some emails about it we did because you declared me as a sustainable brand and i was like but am I? <laughs> <laughs> and 
and you <clears> very <throat> kindly kind of you know gave me the first thing to 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 think about that you know that you you a, a brand that cares and who's trying and and you know that if eco-friendly biodegradable laminating pouches were invented tomorrow i would be the first to be snapping them up and using them um, i agree uh, on that sorry just to, to no, add on. some some depth to that for anyone who's listening for what it's worth the point is not to label anyone as sustainable and i think you cannot brand anyone as sustainable because it's not a binary thing it's really not doesn't matter how amazing you are at sustainability. It's always a roadmap. You can always do better. Yeah, There's always well, something, right? Whether it's in your office or your packaging, or you can always do better. In your, mm-hmm. And be, no one is 100% sustainable. No, but I mean, the fact, we're breathing, I think we're that breathing the intention. The outside into the air <laughs> every moment. Yeah. <laughs> that intention, just wanting to go there, you know, it's not whether you're sustainable or not. It's I want to become more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Then it stops being a binary question. It starts starts being a journey question, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. when when do you finish a painting? Mm-hmm. Is it is it done? You can, you can always patch it up. You can always do better. When do you yeah. finish a creative process? It's a journey. That's a nice, <clears throat> nice way of putting it. Um, so I had some soul searching to do last year. and um, I was very greatly helped by this really lovely e-course that I did called um, Selling Without Shame. It was run by this American artist called a jeweler called Megan Borman, and she's very fantastic and outspoken and inspiring, and she really helps artists in the community value what it is that they do, and she'd noticed that you know, during the pandemic and all the like social unrest and crisis that people were becoming um, ashamed to be posting about their work when there were other really deeply important things going on in the world and mm. how she could help them feel more confident and, and value the work that they were doing in the world as an artist, as being essential. Um, and that the, the title of the course really spoke to me because that's what I was feeling. I was having plastic shame and um, and feeling kind of worried and, and depressed because I didn't really want to give up my, you know, my main product and the product that I've become famous for and the product that people really love. And um, yeah. I had to really think about it. And she was really, really helpful. And she pre-records the material so it's you're not doing it live with her but she's really very much there on the chat to help you with any kind of queries and issues and I was talking to her about how I was feeling and she gave me um, a link to this book called Emotionally Durable Design which is kind of Emotionally Durable Design wow Emotionally Durable Design so it's like how can we make our designs and our products something that people want to keep for a long, long, long time and that people value? Because we're living in a throwaway society, aren't we? Mm. Things are obsolete. Things so it's are not your emotions, it's the buyer's emotions. The buyer's emotions, exactly. Mm. You know, that we have products like phones and TVs with built-in obsolescence and things will just... Um, curl up and die and have to go to landfill because there's no other place for them and how can we make people value what it is that that we are making really spoke to me and one of the exercises on the course was to you know look find or list write down all the ways that people value your work and I went back in through wow um, it's it's interesting Uh, i want to ask you on that because i heard about the distinction between being a consumer and being an owner we are we are in a consumption society and uh, patagonia for example they're talking a lot about instead of just buying something we want you to own it once you own it you have certain emotions attached to it but i want to ask you about that process like if you can you actually get into the shoes of the buyer 
because each of us, we have our own worldviews, we're individualistic people. So you, can you imagine how will I be emotionally attached to your product? You, I mean, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you can't get inside somebody else's head or somebody else's shoes. But so, so how do you do that? Well, I can just hope that someone will fall in love with something enough that they'll want to keep it. And like, and, and in the selling, it's, it, it's not just about um, making it cheap enough so people will just buy loads and loads and loads and loads. Maybe I'd rather they bought less but they really want to to cherish this one thing. So it, it, it made me start thinking about what I could offer. You know, it's like, mm. yes, this is made of plastic. And actually it's made of plastic for a reason because I want it to last. I don't want it to biodegrade before it's had its time. You're saying um, you're trying to give, to think about the emotions of the buyer, emotionally durable design. And you're saying, uh, I felt bad that it's made of plastic, but actually it's yeah. more lasting that way. And yeah. then um, if you buy that, it's something you can own for, I don't know if for life, but for 10, 20 years, instead of just like buying cheap exactly. stuff from God knows where and just replacing it every year and polluting it, earth. It made me think about the opposite of built-in obsolescence. I even Googled, what's the opposite of built-in obsolescence? There is no word like <laughs> durability i guess no durability but yes it's durable but i started to offer you know I've timeless always, timeless um, is the opposite time but you know if something happens to it like if a popper pops off or the cable goes poof is <laughs> the words i've written on my website then i will replace them for life for as long as i am I'm in the business of, of making lights so that if something starts to break, that that is deep. Throw it that, away. That is an amazing uh, insight you've had, and I don't think many brands offer that. You like a lifelong service. You're like, I'm here. I believe in that. Yeah. Um, I offer, you know, lifetime support, lifetime warranty, basically. Exactly, and that that's amazing. made me feel um, that just a, a, a thing that I can do that's um, that's better. And in all this kind of soul searching as well, um, Megan helped me see that, you know, you can compare yourself to um, <clears throat> a business that is like mass produced and um, makes and makes and makes and has loads and loads of product on the shelf that might not necessarily sell. And then what do you do with that in the long run? And just by the very nature of you making things to order, that you are that is more more of a sustainable thing isn't it because absolutely you're making when there's a demand for it not having to hire a warehouse and keep all your stock in and blah blah i mean i mean i just have to say that i do i don't make my wallpaper to order just talking about my lamps here i do keep stock on the shelves of my wallpaper not a vast amount but but as far as the the lamps go um yeah we just have a few on the shelf and we make as and when and that made me think oh yeah that's another thing that matters you know interesting so um, um yeah i was just gonna say that in all of this soul searching and um you know kind of how do i begin to talk about this so i think this is another thing that we had a conversation about way back when I was expressing my worries um is that I kind of feeling like in order to be um sustainable I really like using that word but you have to have all the answers you have to be all, all perfect and um and have it all down before you can declare yourself as like a sustainable brand and this was something that was holding me back that I just needed to kind of declare who I was and where I, where I was and what I'm doing. And, um, yeah. and I so I started you. to kind of try and voice that to my customers in a kind of, you know, how do I do that without tripping over my words, you know? Um, no, I feel I, you. I had the most beautiful email from one of my customers. In fact, when, when I um, was trying to extract the value in my product and in my lamps and, looking back at testimonials and 
I have a testimony. I remember being on a trade show and this lady came up to my stand and said, oh, my elderly mother's got one of your lamps and she has it Hmm. in the corner of her her room and she's not mobile and um, she just says to us every day, I'll switch my lamp on, will you? And she just sits in the chair and enjoys the glow of the lamp and it brings her so much day in, day out. And I thought that was really lovely. And I listed it as one of the values. And then the lady who I was talking about, I didn't realise at the time, happened to be on my mailing list. And she emailed me back and said, just want you to know that the lamp that we bought from you, we have used 2,747 times. We've just worked it out. (laughs) And it it was brought us joy on each of those occasions. And don't you dare ever compare your product to single use throwaway plastic that's the blight of this planet don't amazing <laughs> amazing it's amazing yeah. how your your customer help you figure it out um that's that's my point exactly i think sustainability is not a declaration it's yeah. not um binary it's an intent yeah. and even patagonia if you read their story there's a great book written by the founder they started mm-hmm. in the 60s they they're selling now 800 million dollars worth of uh, clothing a year clothing and equipment 800 million but when they started it was just like you it was a small shop um family-run business Mm -hmm. and they were never 100 sustainable there's no such thing but they always wanted to get better at that yeah and i think it's more of a value and a philosophy rather than just uh, a destination that you achieve Mm -hmm. you know a status Mm -hmm. on that i had a question speaking of um you know um sort of a mental journey you went through or a, yeah. an epiphany. I want to talk to you about 2020 because I know it was um, a rough year for everyone. And mm-hmm. for you also in particular, I know that a bit about your business. You worked with uh, Una, who's also in our community. She also started a brand called Esmo. And um, you were working together. And uh, we also talked to your daughter at some point, who's also uh, yeah. in the maker artisanal business and mm-hmm. she's also a developer so it's really interesting blender i just wanted to ask you what was your biggest struggle or learning from 2020 it was having um when we first went into the deep first lockdown um and at the time i was having my my doubts and my worries about the sustainability issues and and it kind of um gave me a chance to think and, and and have some quiet but it wasn't very quiet in my head because <laughs> there was so much going on in there and but I think that that was really valuable time for sorting things out I remember you know we'd go for walks and I'd meet up with my son and sit in the meadow and talk it through and you know it was it was really lovely to be a, to have been granted this time to figure some things out so and, on that was the struggle sort of mental like uh yeah. psychological it was like yeah. worrying about the shop and about it the was sales always. once i knew at the beginning in early lockdown once i knew that it was going to be all right financially i was able to furlough uni which was amazing um, and I also was lucky to to have um, got the ten thousand grant from the council for the business rates thing. Um, so I knew that's great that financially things were going to be all right. And work slowed absolutely slowed down for yeah. quite a few weeks, and I was working full on working at home, not even being able to send out wallpaper samples or anything. But I kind of felt it's all right for a bit. I've been working and working and working so hard. And it's really this rare opportunity to have a proper rest and really think about things. Mm. But, you know, when... So you reframe that in your mind. Yeah. So that that was all all right. I wasn't worried about... uh, And nobody knew what was coming, did they? I mean... No. Um, and how long it was going to go on for. <clears throat> I remember me and Uni sitting down going, oh my God, 
do you think we really need to worry about this? You know, like at the, the <laughs> very first thread of COVID being a thing. It's like, yeah, God, what's going to happen? That was like back in March, probably, or February. It was a documentary about China from an Australian point of view. It's all blurred into one all these That makes sense. Here. Yeah. And just kind of like, oh my God, this is actually coming here at some point. And um, we had no idea, did we? But so anyway, once I knew that the business side of things was going to be all right, it's like, okay, let's just take some time to be quiet and find a place for these things that have been kind of lurking in the back of my mind and worrying me. And so I did take it as an opportunity to to get clear about some stuff. And and that has been valuable. What was your biggest learning from that? That opportunity to take, to observe inwards, to be introspective. Yeah, taking more time for that, I think. Mm. Um, is that something you'll carry forward with you, like moving forward 2021? It's, it's something that I think that I do a lot of anyway. I do give time to myself and I give myself quiet and reflective time anyway, but it was heightened it was um it was i don't think i've quite articulated the answer on a professional level 2020 had lots of hardships but it was a really good year for me and my work and my thought processes and some sad things happened and um losing uni to Oh, that's, that's a long other story and I don't know if I should go into it now but lovely Uni who worked for me sadly lost her sister in the middle of last year and yeah and, and had to leave my business and go up and support the family and it was a really sad time for everybody <clears throat> um and that was really harsh and um and turned things upside down but we got through all of these hard times. We got through it. And I didn't set out to, you know, like there was a kind of Instagram, social media was very, very noisy to begin with when we first went into lockdown, wasn't it? And everybody giving yes. us advice about what we can do and how we can feel better and how we can look after ourselves. And it was just, whew, it was full on. Um, it's always um, full on, but yeah, it's true. I, I hear you. More intense than usual, maybe. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, let me ask you about about social media. That's actually um, super interesting. You've built your Instagram. It's like completely off topic, but it's I think interesting uh, for listeners as well. You have mm. you've reached ten thousand followers recently on Instagram, which mm. is a huge achievement. I don't think you ever poured money into that process in terms of like advertising or anything like that. And it took you a while to get there, I presume. Um, yeah, but you... it, wasn't, it wasn't somewhere I had as a destination, to be honest. It's not like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get loads and loads of followers. It really is something that has just, just happened over time just by using it a little bit each day and it's just grown and grown and grown and what um how were you using it then was it like you just share your thoughts share your work um mm -hmm. maybe that those whispers is yeah. that where yeah. they ended up i often just use it <laughs> i always find myself going i'm really excited about dot 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 <laughs> like here she is she's excited <laughs> again <laughs> <laughs> but yeah mostly to share work and um and beautiful pictures of nature and um, maybe the odd um, cat <laughs> maybe the odd bit of willow <laughs> the odd cat <laughs> things light at the beginning of cats. At the beginning of lockdown I um she's a very bright cat and she has always since she's a kitten played fetch and brought us back fur combs and put some in my slipper and and she's just amazing. So I thought, oh, I've got this idea that I could I could train her. And at the beginning of lockdown, I 
went to our local um, toy shop, totally awesome. It's called Brilliant Shop. Mm, and that's a good name. Buy a, a hula hoop because I wanted to teach my cat to jump through a hoop. <laughs> the lady in the shop was like, oh, God, another mad Hebden Bridge cat lady. But yeah, send me a picture for Instagram <laughs> once she's done it, won't you? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, a bit of willow, keep things light on Instagram. And I think I think more brands need to hear that because, um, you know, um, you say it as an afterthought, but it's very interesting. I think a lot of us go on Instagram wanting to sell, wanting to shout, like scream the loudest. Uh, Come to me, there's a sale, 20% off. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we have the best, I don't know, handcrafted, whatever. And I think you approach it in a very healthy manner. You say, I don't care about the number of followers. Mm-hmm. Um, I always focused on just the process, but the process for me was just inspiration, just sharing my excitement about certain things. Absolutely. And, and consistently, I've done it consistently, also said that. So like every day, bit by bit, it compounds itself incrementally. And then suddenly you look back and you're, wow, 10,000 followers. I didn't spend, I don't know if that's true. I didn't spend one pound advertising on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't try to do like uh, any sales promotions, you know, uh, mostly. And uh, somehow I did end up with this fabulous result. Other brands are listening right now, um, you know, women or men working from home and they have a brand or a retail store and they've been through 2020 and they're going into the next year or two of their life. What's your advice for them? Yeah, I think that the world definitely needs people who are really passionate and excited about what they're doing. And I really think that we all take Instagram too seriously and sounds really I don't know what the word is sounds like I don't I don't care about it I spend as much time on Instagram as everybody else yeah um but observing it I think we we make too much of it we make it too important and true let it control our lives right yeah we really do and and so that things become about finding content to put on Instagram instead of just doing what we want to do it's really really hard not to compare yourself to everybody else and everything that everybody else is doing and I really have to try and kind of just come back to my own true north my own where I'm going and what makes me feel good and all right I love it I think it's great advice yeah thank you thank you for sharing that that's all right that's all right great well it was uh, really fantastic chatting with you I think uh, if I just summarize it we've been through a journey quite a journey Uh, we talked about your childhood a bit and we talked about your craft and what was your inspiration to um, create that movie, uh, what you've been through in 2020, and what's your advice for other brands and yourself in 2021 and moving forward. Um, I found it to be super inspirational, and I think our listeners also uh, would really enjoy that. Um, anything else? Just, just one thread that kind of hasn't um, reached its full conclusion, and it all began when you asked me, about the film and, and why we made it. And, True. And then in the middle, I began to talk about, you know, my worries. And the film kind of is a celebration of, of coming to terms with that and realising kind of what my place is in the world of, you know, I, I listened to this amazing podcast about environmental anxiety mm-hmm. and... They were saying, you know, not everyone can do everything. We can't, we, but we're all unique and we all have a tiny part to play and we don't have to all be doing massive, massive things, but find out what your one unique thing is. And I think that 
they're filming the film and writing the script for it helped me to come to terms with what my part is. So I'll leave it there and people can just watch. <laughs> wow. That was uh, certainly worth waiting for. I'm happy you shared that. And um, it does show when you watch that short film, um, it does show who you are and does show your art. It's very, uh, I don't know how you managed to do it. It's very a short clip, but it's very deep and you, you do go on a journey. So um, it's a great job to you and uh, to Sarah who made it. So he's brilliant. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you ever so much. You are um, very insightful and um, thoughtful and um, yeah, super supportive. And thanks for your lovely interview. Pleasure is all mine. Pleasure is all mine. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Oh, 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 oh,